A blessed Sunday morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we continue on our study of the book of Exodus. Last week, uh, our message was about uh, trusting in God's provision through the giving of the manna and the quail in the wilderness. And today, we're going to discuss a very important part of the book of Exodus uh, for the next two weeks, which is understanding the Ten Commandments, why it's given, what's the background, uh, why it is part of the Bible in the Old Testament, and often how it is interpreted in the New. So the title of our message this morning is Rules of Engagement, and part two comes next week. So let's uh, bow down our heads with a word of prayer. Uh, gracious and loving God, as we look again into the book of Exodus, we pray that you speak to us in a personal way to understand what you desire us to know as your people so that we will really live lives that are pleasing to you. Guide us, uh, be our wisdom, and also, Lord, uh, teach us to become people who reflect Christ inside out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, uh, when talking about the idea of rules of engagement, uh, I would... Uh, I think uh, this is a very common struggle that most of us face on a day-to-day -day basis. So, for example, you are in a new place or you are in a new job or a new school. There are major and minor adjustments uh, that you have to uh, go through to be able to cope with what is happening in that new situation. So, we call this cultural Adjustment. So, for example, you move into a new neighborhood, you are in a new situation, there are a new set of unspoken rules, right? And so you have to know how to relate with people, how things work, where to go, who to ask. These are very, very common experiences day to day where there are um, some form of cultural adjustments we must make to be able to fit in. Okay, so example, you have a new job, uh, you're starting a new family, you're moving to another neighborhood, and so on and so forth. But there are also situations where there are major cultural adjustments and clashes that happen. And for example, one person moves to another culture really different uh, from theirs, and that is really a big adjustment. For example, interracial marriages, right? Uh, a Filipino and Chinese family living together. Two cultures coming together. These are cert there are certain types of adjustments and struggles that one goes through to be able to really form a new culture. Now, sadly, uh, one of the major uh, cultural clashes that happens is when two companies decide to merge. And usually, if the merger fails, they lost in millions of or billions. So let me share a typical example in the States. One of the top six uh, uh, merger blunders in the States was that between Quaker Oats and Snapple. So let me relate to you the story that happened uh, almost two decades ago. So Quaker Oats was uh, managing a very successful uh, popular drink, Gatorade. And it thought that it could do the same with Snapple. It's a popular bottled juice and uh, drink company. So in 1994, despite the warnings of Wall Street that the company was buying Snapple, uh, overpaying for more than a, a billion, 
Okay, it's still, you know, thought, ah, we can do it. Let's just buy Snapple. So, Quaker Company bought Snapple for 1.7 billion US dollars. So, aside from overpaying, the management broke a very fundamental law in mergers, and that is to add value to that company that they are buying. No, they just bought it and thought of managing it. That's it. Now, the sad news was that after 27 months, Quaker decided to sell Snapple to another holding company because it didn't succeed in the merger for just $300 million. Right? They paid $1.7 billion and after 27 months sold the company for $300 million or it is a substantial loss of 1.6 million US dollars each day they own Snapple. Such a big loss of this big failure. So aside from inadequate planning, integration planning, they also need to deal with lots of employee distress, employee dissatisfaction due to lack of shared values, misunderstandings, working styles, and the list goes on and on. So going into a merger is a big situation for companies buying another company because if they don't know how to integrate well, then chances are both companies will suffer great losses. So talking about cultural clashes. Okay. So what about changing allegiances? So it is very quite similar when sinners who are oriented in the mindset and the culture of the world, how the world thinks, you know, uh, being successful, the fame, the power, the wealth. And then one day you find grace and decided to join the family of God. And this family upholds standards, values from the Bible that is totally different from the culture you came from. Cultural clash. It's a make-or-break situation because if not uh, addressed to properly, either they say, I don't fit and leave the church, or they uh, are rejected by those people inside the church. And this is where discipleship is most needed, right? Because they need someone to journey through with them to learn about the biblical standards and values that the church upholds and slowly become one of the family. Now, when we look at the book of Exodus, it was a grander version of this problem because this entire nation of Israel, they were 430 years influenced by the Egyptian culture. And not only that, they were shaped by oppression and also the pagan religion of the Egyptians. Now, millions of them are being transported eight hundred more kilometers from Egypt into Canaan, the promised land. So from slaves, they will be en route so that they will become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Imagine the major shift in what they will be encountering. No? Major cultural clash. So Moses calls, uh, was called by God, not via email, not via video conference. God calls him via burning bush at the Mount of Horeb. And some people say, actually, it's the same place as Mount Sinai. Okay, so, and then he goes and fetches the entire nation 
through a mighty deliverance of God, ten plagues, parting of the Red Sea, the sea swallowing up the armies of Egypt. Miracle upon miracle to bring these people out of the land of the yoke of slavery to become God's chosen people, his treasured possession. And now after three months of moving from Egypt to the, into the wilderness, they were back at Mount Sinai, the very place where Moses heard God call him to deliver these people. And so he was bringing these people to meet the God who rescued them out of the land of slavery. So what would have the people expected okay, during this time? So if you have watched the movie Independence Day, it's already an old movie today. No, they only wanted to meet these aliens. And these motherships came and they were surprised that instead of being friendly aliens, they were there to annihilate the earth. So think about the panic, the fear, and uh, you know the human spirit that is embodied in that movie. Okay? Because that's the idea there. They were surprised at what they saw. Okay? So what kind of God, who is this God who brought them out of the yoke of slavery? And so as they approached the mountain of God at the Mount Sinai, what would they experience? So before we go to the Ten Commandments, allow us to just browse quickly through chapter 19 so that we have a feel of what kind of God has brought them out and is speaking now to them. What kind of God did Moses bring all these people to meet in the wilderness of Sinai? Now, in chapter 19, it says on verse 1 that it was the third new moon after the people left out of the land that they were encamped in the wilderness of Sinai and the Lord asked Moses to tell the people this. Okay, tell the house of Jacob, the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and these are the words you are to speak to Israel. Okay, so God introduces himself and explains to them who he was. Not only did he deliver them from the yoke of slavery with mighty acts of power, okay, he was telling them, Okay. All the earth is mine. He was introducing himself as the creator of the entire world. And they will become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right? So this is the idea here. No? God redeemed them for a specific purpose. And then later on, he will give them uh, guidelines for the merger. You have to follow or obey my covenant. And if you agree, then the outcome of your, this partnership, you will be my treasured possession. And further on, we see the elders of the people telling Moses, tell God, yes, we will obey, we will follow. Okay, we will obey, we will follow. So they agreed, and then God shows up. 
God shows up. It was a fearsome sight. There were thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain, a loud trumpet blast like none other, that the people in the camp trembled in fear. And Sinus was filled up with smoke because the Lord descended on it with fire. Okay, and there was a loud trumpet blast, and when Moses spoke, God responded to him in thunder. Such a fearsome sight. No? So I would imagine all the Israelites trembling in fear as they approach the mountain of God. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, we will follow all that you say so that we will be your people. So who is this God? And what would it be like to be his people? And now they didn't only see the miracles, but they also experienced the fearsome sight of God descending on the mountain. And they said, okay, we will obey. But probably the problem was that. No? They wanted to obey because of fear. And later on, Jesus tells them, no, you cannot obey in fear. You have to obey in love. Okay, So uh, that uh, sets the stage. So as we go into the Ten Commandments, we will be able to understand that was what happened. Jesus will, uh, Moses will now go back to the mountain to get the deeds of the contract no, in detail. The Ten Commandments plus a set of rules and laws for the people to obey because that's what they agreed to do. The story goes that there was this power plant operator who always get prank calls every Sunday at 3 p.m. On the first time he was pranked, no, he answered politely. And then later on, they laughed at him, and he was furious, right? And said, please don't call again. The following week, the same call, uh, he acted politely, answered politely. Again, he was pranked no? and joked with by a group of youngsters. The third Sunday, the phone rang. He answered. He didn't give them a chance to talk. He scolded immediately, cursing and shouting in silence. And the operator said to the person at the other end of the, the, the ano, what do you have to say? Okay, the person on the other end of the line said, do you know who I am? And the operator grew pale because the voice was the voice of the power plant manager. So he mistaken it to be a prank call. And so stuttering, afraid that he might lose his job, he asked back, Yes, I know who you are. You are the plant manager. Do you know who I am? And so the plant manager responded, I don't know. Who are you? Eh, okay, bye-bye. Then he hung up. Ah, relieved that the plant manager did not know him. Right? And so this is the dilemma there. They were there going to be God's people, but they need to understand what kind of a God they're entering contracts with. So at the beginning of the contract in Exodus chapter 20, before laying, down the, laying out the Ten Commandments, which is in a series of societal and communal laws, God reminds them who he is. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of the house of slavery. Notice this passage. He said, I am the Lord. It's a capital O, 
capital uppercase O R D, which means in the original Hebrew manuscripts, written there is the name of God, Yahweh, okay, or the great I am. And because they revere the name of God, they change it to Adonai. But translators make sure we know that in the original uh, language, it is Yahweh, the name of God, who brought you out of the land of slavery, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, which means God again is reminding them who he is, right? He is Yahweh, the self-existing one. The creator of the universe is calling them out. He didn't only call them out, he rescued them, not with just by giving them a handshake or a welcome party. He rescued them from the hands of the tyrant Pharaoh and his people. He delivered them with a mighty deliverance. And he took them out of the state of slavery. He redeemed them to be his own people, to be free. Okay, so he had to remind them who he was. But the question is, after knowing who he is, will they still continue to minimize God with the gods made from wood and stone? So when we look in Deuteronomy chapter 4, 27 to 29, uh, this was what was written. And the Lord will scatter you among all the people, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. Okay, this is a curse, right? When they disobey God, they will be brought to another land where they will worship gods made from wood and stone, from human hands, and these gods neither see or hear or eat or smell. But from there you will seek the Lord and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Right? And so that's the point. Do not worship do not make God like the gods of the Egyptians made from wood or carved stone. He is not to be contended with. He is not a joke. He is the real deal. He is the most powerful, self-existent God who created all things. Now, sometimes we have what we call false narratives about God. Okay? What do I mean by saying false narratives about God? How we view God affects uh, how we understand the value and nature of our relationship with God. So James Bryan Smith, if you read the book, The Good and Beautiful God, he tells us that sometimes as Christians we are plagued with false narratives or wrong stories, fake news about God. And our misunderstanding of God affects how we relate to God. And so, he is asking us in the book to go back to how Jesus knew his Father and make it our own narrative. Some of these false narratives include that God is a celestial killjoy. And I don't know if you have this mindset that God is there to make you suffer. God is there because he do not want you to do, do well. He is there to make, give you a difficult life. Others see him as a proverbial genie of the lamp, right? He's the source of health, wealth, 
and blessings. He's there to soothe our pain, to show our worries and woes, and to solve all our problems. That's about it. Others see him as a distant God who is uninvolved with our life. Right? He's too busy for the small things of the human life. He is the God of the big leagues. He does not care for somebody as insignificant as me. But these are all, according to James Bryant Smith, false narratives or a misinterpretation of God. And if we carry this with us all our lives, then we have the wrong way of relating to God. Okay? So that's what is trying to be addressed here. God is not like the gods of the nations. He's not like these gods who are made by human hands. He is the real thing. And they have experienced ten plagues, a mighty deliverance, the parting of the Red Sea, miracles upon miracles, uh, manna, quail, right? The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire leading them out, right? These are but some small things compared to the might and greatness of a God who created the universe. And now they're standing at the foot of the mountain of God where he descends on Mount Sinai and they saw it thunder, lightning, smoke filling the place. Such an awesome God he is to behold. He's a God we should not contend with. He's a God we do not dare offend. He's a God who we cannot boss around or manipulate. Right? He has, is a God we cannot hide things from. And he's a God who sets the terms of the relationship between us and him. But he's also a loving God, a God who blesses, a God who rewards faithfulness, a God who provides. He's just a God who is so loving, and the cross declares that time and time again. But what does this God deserve after all he did for them and all he promised to do for them? What will Israel pay him back? Will he, they really obey all the stipulations of the commands of the covenant? Or will they disobey and disregard God because they have a false narrative of God? Now, believe it when your parents tell you, one day when you are a parent, you will understand how hard being a parent is. Totoo po yan. Because children will really test your character, and patience. Now, it is only when your child tends to take you for granted, you know, you cook for them all day, they complain about your cooking. When they misunderstand your intentions, you just want to keep them safe and they feel you are, you know, strangling them. Or when they answer rudely, when your only desire is to make sure they're okay, then you will really appreciate your parents. You will finally understand, okay, right? Generational gap, miscommunication happens. Right? And so this is the same thing right? when we misunderstand what kind of a God we have. So what does God deserve from these slaves who had a very bitter and hard life that he has freed now with a mighty deliverance with its outstretched arms from the tyranny of Egyptian rulers after 430 years? What does he deserve? Right? So that is the question we'd like to ask as we explore the first four commands. Okay, first is he deserves absolute loyalty. He deserves absolute loyalty. And it says here that you shall not make, you shall not have any gods 
before me. You shall not have any gods before me. So here in this passage, God is like a husband and he demands loyalty from his wife. He's telling his wife, me only, no other. No, because he cannot tolerate infidelity. But it also means that his love is pure, unyielding, and deserves to be reciprocated for the relationship to work. That's why he is a jealous God. Because he has given much. And it is just right for him to expect much. So we need to understand that the Bible teaches us that there is only one God. One true God. We do not have a list of gods to pick from. Right? If you study Greek mythology, may listahan po, no? There have many gods. So you choose whom you will serve. This is not that question when he says, you must have no other gods before me. And that makes the problem even more severe. It is a choice between the true God or worshiping worthless idols that are made by God or made by human hands. So that is actually a great insult to God. When we worship idols, why will we choose created things over the creator? Right? And so that is what it means here. Absolute loyalty. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay? And so John Galbraith was an economist in the 1900s. He was famous and he was always called upon by many dignitaries so that he can help them sort out problems in economic markets. Right? And he wrote the following story in his autobiography about his housekeeper. Okay, I'd like you to listen to this story. It was a very tiring day. I asked Emily, the housekeeper, to hold all the telephone calls while I took a nap. He was really exhausted. He needed a nap. So the housekeeper got the message. The boss said, hold all the calls. And shortly thereafter, when he's starting to uh, take a nap, the phone rang. And on uh, the line was President Lyndon Johnson calling from the White House. And so the voice said, get me Ken Galbraith. This is Lyndon Johnson. He's sleeping, Mr. President. He said not to disturb him. So Lyndon Johnson, frustrated, said, well, wake him up. I want to talk to him. This is the president. And the housekeeper said, no, sorry, Mr. President. I work for him, not for you. Okay, I will call him when he wakes up. I will tell him when he wakes up that you called. Later on, when uh, the economist calls the president, uh, the president was laughing. And he said this to this economist, Kenneth Galbraith. Tell that woman, Emily, your housekeeper, I want her to work for me in the White House. Because Emily understood this principle. He was a servant. She was a servant to one man, and she obeyed him without question. Her loyalty was to her boss. And that is true servanthood. Right? And so the same way, we need to serve one God, the creator of the universe, right? The one who delivered us from the clasp or the yoke of sin, okay? Like he did to the Egyptians, the one who also redeemed us 
to be His people. He deserves our absolute loyalty. Now, today in the 21st, 21st century, despite people are way advanced in education and technology, people today still worship false gods. Gods that are created by human hands who do not see, who do not hear, who do not smell, who do not speak, who do not eat. But we also need to list down other things or other idols. And these are things in this modern world that challenges our loyalty to God. Because again, God, dis- God deserves our absolute loyalty. So Dan Spader took Jesus' parable of the soils to identify four spiritual obstacles okay, to obedience. And he called this the four W's. And let me name them now. Wants, worries, wealth, and the world. When our heart continues to long after our wants, when we are plagued by the worries and needs, when we are nasisila, uh, when we are attracted or allured by wealth and what the world offers, we tend to look away from God and follow the agenda of the world. Because we do not trust that God is the one who can provide. God is the one who will protect. God is the one who will keep His promise. And God is the one who will preserve us for His glory. We lose sight of Jesus and we are drawn right back into the world. The four W's. And so we need to go back to the race marked out for us. So I don't know about you, What challenges your loyalty and devotion to God? These are called idols. What is grabbing your time? What is grabbing your attention? What is taking toll into your life that you are not living a life fully devoted to God? You have to surrender these idols up because God is a jealous God. He demands absolute loyalty. And the second command shows us that God deserves acceptable worship. Acceptable worship, right? And so it says in the passage in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image yeah, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not make for yourself anything okay, that is created by God and worship them or that is created by your own hands and worship them because there is only one God and He cannot be re- represented by any created thing or any object. I remember uh, when we were studying the five love languages by Gary Chapman, it says that to show love, and to receive love, we have to understand our love language and their love language. 
No, and if you remember the five, it's uh, time, gifts, service, words, and touch. Okay, we have what we call our giving and receiving language. So, for example, my uh, uh, particular love language is words of affirmation. So, even though people will uh, spend lots of time with me, but do not affirm me, then I will not feel loved. So, that person who wants to show love to me must know my love language and challenge themselves to give what is not natural for them to show their love. And vice versa, for example, if my spouse's love language is time and mine is service, now serving them is okay, but if I don't give time to listen, to hear their heart, and to really have intimate uh, relational time with them, then the person won't feel love. So that's the idea of the five love languages. And so it is very clear here that when we worship God, we do not worship based on our terms. We need to worship based on His terms. Right? We are to receive God's love, but we are to give back love to God by worship Him according to His terms or rules of engagement. So he abhors the worship of man-made things. He abhors the worship of created things. He is insulted when we worship creation rather than the creator. And he calls such actions as hatred towards him. And because it is sin, he will punish sin. He said up to the third or fourth generation, but he blesses those who obey to a thousand generations. That is the faithfulness and the love of God. And Jesus also affirmed that God's love language is obedience. In other words, we are to obey His commands and show that we truly love Him. And in many occasions, He taught His disciples what kind of worshipers the Father seeks. They must worship in spirit and truth. They must worship God in humility of heart, right? With their entire uh, mind, soul, body, being, spirit. Okay, with faith, unwavering faith, and so on and so forth. And when asked if we are to pay taxes to Caesar, he asked them to look at the image on the coin. Whose image is this? Caesar's? Then give to Caesar what is Caesar, but give to God what is God's. And we know the answer that we are created in the image of God. And so we are to give ourselves fully to him. We are, and all creation also belongs to God. We are to give everything back to God. So now, the question, the hard question here, when we look at this verse of acceptable worship is, have you been holding back anything from God? Okay? What is lacking to make you give Him your all? Is it your management of your time? Your willingness to serve? Okay? Is it your tithe? because you're afraid you will not have enough? Is it, uh, you know, your right to speak up, even though it hurts people? I don't know what you have been holding back from God who deserves it all, but that is what He requires. He requires us to give all that we are to Him. Acceptable worship. Not according to our terms. It's according to His terms. And you know what? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Loyalty he rewards with 
blessing for a thousand generations. There is no losing in God, but the step of obedience is usually more easier said than done. Right? Easier said than done. I'd like to read to you a poem by Christina Rossetti. This is what she said. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would give him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? I'll give him my heart. Brothers and sisters, now what are we holding back from God who deserves our all? Who is generous to us? Who owns not only all that we have, but we ourselves belong to him. He has redeemed us out of the kingdom of darkness into his holy light and deserves our all. Third is off-field reverence. Off-field reverence. In verse 7, it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Yahweh, or the great I Am, was the name God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Okay? I am who I am. I am sent you. And so this name is to receive the utmost reverence and we will understand why. Right? Reverence towards the name of God is resonated by Christ in the New Testament when he taught his disciples to pray. In the prayer says, Hallowed be your name, or to be set apart as the name above all names. Because this is the name of the one and only true God. His name deserves the utmost praise and glory. It is to be revered, feared, loved, adored. It differentiates him from the rest of the false gods of the foreign nations of Israel, around Israel. And so taking the name of God, dishonoring the name of God is dishonoring God himself who revealed himself through that name. Now later on in the New Testament, this was also attributed to the Son of God. At the name of Jesus, demons shudder in fear. As followers of Christ, we are to treat this name with reverence, right? And it has to be coinciding with the life that declares his name to the nations. We are to proclaim to all the earth the name to which they will be saved, right? So that every knee will bow, every tongue confess this name, Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we are saved. In the name of Jesus, we declare forgiveness, healing, and deliverance. In the name of Jesus, we receive victory. In the name of Jesus, we are baptized. In the name of Jesus, we are justified, sanctified, and await glorification. Suffering, true suffering. And in the name, okay, we are redeemed. So this is the point of understanding the importance of, of showing uh, all-filled reverence to the name of God. How is your reverence to the name of God and His Son, Jesus? And how does it happen in the way we think, speak, act, and witness about Him? Do we tell people how beautiful this name is? 
Do you understand now the, that idea, the, the beautiful name, the name above all names? Because this is the name through which you are saved. Is this a daily experience? How much are we ascribing greatness to that name? How are you making his name famous or great? Right? And how are we, you know, ascribing absolute uh, glory, power, and magnificence to this wonderful name of God? Okay? So he deserves us to treat him with awe-filled reverence. Wow! There is no greater name. And last but not the least, okay, is anticipating rest. Anticipating rest. Absolute loyalty, acceptable worship, all-filled reverence, and the fourth command, anticipating rest. And you would like to ask, why is rest such a big deal in the Bible? And what is this rest all about? And why were they asked to make the Sabbath a holy day, a special day, and why is violating the Sabbath rest dishonoring to God? This is why. No, we are to honor God by honoring His design and plan. Right? And in verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and uh, do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in the six days the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all in it and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. No, And if you have time, watch the video by the Bible Project about the Sabbath. And let me just summarize some key points I find uh, meaningful to explain this concept of rest. Okay. Note that the seventh day in the creation story, unlike the first six days, have no evening and have no morning. Of course, he said that it was very good. Creation was very, very good. But it having no evening and morning means that creation has reached its completion and now man is in that place where God invites them into in the rest. Okay, into his rest or the enjoyment of all that it is made and even given the authority to rule creation together with God. That's the rest. No? But since punishment, because of the disobedience of man, placed back man into the cycle of work where they are to suffer endless toil. Right? So Pharaoh oppressed them for 430 years and they experienced no rest whatsoever. So en route to the promised land, God institutes for them the Sabbath day. And that, that was a full day where they will be attempting to have a taste of God's future rest, a taste of heaven, if I may say that, every seven days as they prepare themselves to enter into the land flowing with milk and Honey, So they are being prepared to enter the future rest God intended for them. And they were to take that whole day off and that day was to be lived as if God, they were in God's rest. A day holy unto the Lord where we focus on God's goodness, God's uh, overwhelming love, 
okay, worshiping Him while our heart genuinely anticipates His rest. Now, this is not only where the Sabbath or the Sabbath rest is highlighted in the uh, culture of Israel. And we can learn that there are actually other festivals and practices that emphasize the seventh, right? So for example, they have seven festivals, each climaxes on a Sabbath, anticipating that Sabbath rest. Okay? And then there was a celebration. There was also a seventh year called the Year of Jubilee, where all slaves will be set free, anticipating that freedom. Okay? And also, there is such a thing as the ultimate jubilee, the seven times seven year or the 49th year. And this year is all properties will be returned to their rightful all owners and all debts are canceled. Okay? Because they were anticipating for that day to come. The rest to experience God's rest, to be back where God intended man to be, to be in his new heavens and new earth, okay, the new Eden. Now, it's very, very interesting as well that Jesus also talked about Sabbath rest a lot for his followers. First, he started his ministry on the Sabbath by reading from the book of Isaiah. And he declared that it was the year of Jubilee. <laughs> okay, because indeed, through his ministry, he will set us who are captives of sin and death free. And on one occasion, he also declared the Son of Man, Lord of the Sabbath. And now you know the significance of understanding Sabbath rest in their culture is looking forward for the culmination of God's redemption as we all join him in his eternal reign, enjoying all that he has created in that rest. And also, there is a significance that Jesus resurrects not on the seventh day, but he resurrects on the eighth day. Okay, Sabbath is the Saturday, the Sunday ang uh, Lord's Day. And that is also significant because it initiates an ultimate celebration of rest. Because his resurrection declares that death has been defeated, sin conquered and overcome. And now we can have that gift of eternal rest offered to us. We call it eternal life, which will climax when one day he will come back Okay, just as the same as he ascended to heaven. So this is how important celebrating the Sabbath is. Rejecting the Sabbath is rejecting the blessings of God because he wanted us to anticipate or look forward for the day of his deliverance, for the day Jesus comes back in that future where we will be living with him in his eternal kingdom where worry, fear, and toil no longer exists. That's why we are to keep the Sabbath holy, but today we keep the Lord's Day holy. As Jesus says, instituted uh, the Lord's Day, okay, because He is the Lord of the Sabbath rest. So the question is, are you keeping your Sabbath day holy and set apart for God? 
No, some people just have one day rest, but it is really a day where you honor God and take time reflecting on His goodness and enjoying His wonderful gifts. Do we have a day where we take this break and look forward for His promised eternal rest? No, and the wonderful thing, God made it a law because He just simply wanted mankind from the beginning to enjoy all He created along. with him. It means God means business and he tells us and shows us that they were all there for a reason. Now we jump the next six commands and go to verse 18 and again there were thunder, flashes of lightning, a sound of a loud trumpet, the mountain was smoking, the people were afraid, trembled and they stood far off fearing the appearance of the presence of God while he was giving these commandments. And they said to Moses, You speak to us, we will listen. They were so afraid. But do not let God speak to us because we will die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that you may fear him. Okay? That the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So God intended them to see what kind of God he is so that they will not choose to sin. but they will obey so that they could be the people of God, the kingdom of priests, the people who would bring all creation restored back to himself. Right? But we know that this is not the end of the story because they will be worshiping. In just 40 days, they will be making a golden calf and worshiping an idol. And uh, we see also the cycle of sin continuing until Christ. And that's why we need the new covenant, the new testament, the new contract which is fulfilled in Christ. That's why Christ fulfills the law. Right? Christ fulfills the law. He didn't abolish the law, but he fulfilled it because only through Christ now we can be declared righteous. When Jesus asked by the religious leaders which of the commands are the greatest, right? He exposed them the flaws of legalism of the Pharisees. He told them, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And these are highlighting the Ten Commandments because outward obedience can never replace inward repentance and allegiance. Love is the reason behind obeying these commandments. Right? The people trembled in fear, but they failed to love God. And Jesus was explaining that to the Pharisees. No, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you love God, then you will give Him your absolute loyalty, acceptable worship, all-filled reverence. And also, we will be anticipating the rest of God. But you do not truly love Him. That's why that is your problem. So in, in uh, saying that these are the two greatest commandments, he was actually addressing the essence of the law above its compliance or obedience. So the next week naman, we have six more commands. We will be focusing on loving neighbor as ourself, which is the second part of the Ten Commandments. So let me summarize key principles for you that we learned today. Before that, the question that we have to ask is, who is God to you today? A celestial killjoy? 
a proverbial genie of the lamp? Right? A distant, uncaring God? Or do you really know that Jesus, the Father, Jesus knows? And we need to again look at the Father with the eyes of Christ. So how do we respond to such a God who loves and cares for us, even giving His Son to die on the cross for our sins? How do we respond? First, is we are to remove our idols, the idols of a life. Are there false idols, false priorities, things that hinder your loyalty to God today, that rob God of your full devotion? You have to identify them. What are they? What is the Spirit telling you? Give them up. Remove that idols. Cast them aside. Let God sit on the throne of your life again. Second, we must worship God according to His terms. Exalt Him according to His terms, not according to our terms. Right? Are we neglecting our spiritual discipline? Word, worship, fellowship, prayer. Are we also neglecting, you know, the fellowship, the worship as a family of God, the serving of brothers and sisters? Are we not doing what we ought to really exalt God according to His terms? Are we allowing the Word of God to transform us day after day? Third, ascribe His name greatness okay, by living a life of integrity in His power, but not only by living a life of integrity, but by taking also His name to the ends of the earth. Who are you sharing Christ's name to? Are you declaring the God, the name of Christ in your posts on social media? Are you sharing to them what God is doing in your life to make His name known? Okay, it's not just avoidance like the Jews did. They didn't write the name of God so that they can mention it. But it's really ascribing greatness to that name. Putting it, His name above every name. And finally, are we taking time to enjoy the rest God wants? Do we lead a life of holy expectation? Looking forward to the day of our redemption. Looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Looking forward to be able to be there in His eternal kingdom. Come, Jesus, come. Come soon. And so this is about discipleship. Our journey to learn to love God getting to know Him more and more every single day. And our disciple-making is when we involve in others' life so that they can also embark a journey to love God. Discipleship is your relationship with God. Disciple-making is your attempt to help others find God. These are two different things that we ought to pay attention to because we are asked to make disciples of all nations. Brothers and sisters, there were several times in my own life I was confronted with a toughest of all questions. And that question is, how much do I love God? And every single time I'm confronted with this question, I am reminded that I have no capacity to love God. And I'm also reminded of God's unconditional and prevailing stubborn love manifested on the cross of Christ. 
there were times I prioritized personal pleasure over bodily discipline. And God asked me, do you love me? When I utter careless and hurting words to those I love, God confronts me with the question, do you love me? When I don't pray as much as I should, don't give enough time to my God, don't pray for his, the people, and then he confronts me with this, do you love me? When I'm lazy to pursue spiritual things that is good for my soul, he asks me, do you love me? When I engage in sinful thoughts and actions, I dare not expose to others. Then that question resonates, do you love me? When I feel envious of material things that others have, or when I complain about my situation, and when there are people that simply challenge my nerves, then God again confronts me with this question, do you love me? And when I'm face-to-face with this question, right, I know I don't love God, and I don't love others, and I cannot deny before God that ultimately I love myself more than I love him and others. And it is moments that I am reminded to let Christ's love flow through me because it is not about my love, but it is about him changing my heart to be like his. And these words shout loudly to me. We love because Christ first love us and the message of the cross overwhelms me once again to walk in its shadow to live a life that truly honors God absolute loyalty acceptable worship all filled reverence anticipating that rest he promised I am a child God loves, and so I ought to love him. May the Lord help us to understand these principles and keep them to heart. Let's pray. Loving God, as we again dwell on your word, help us to be encouraged and moved and compelled by your unfailing love through Christ shown to us to really, O oh Lord, learn what it means to live a life that honors you. We admit on our own it is impossible, but we thank you that Christ's love overshadows ours and that we can allow him to love others through us and love you as he loved you. Thank you, O Lord, for giving us these gifts that we are no longer under law but under grace so that all of these things can be fulfilled in Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our all. Uh, make us the people who truly embodies what it means to love the God who first loved us. And may we shine Christ and declare his name great every single day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, brothers and sisters.